Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawatic, sitting here with my co-host, Aaron Cameron. Although we are sitting virtually not in person, as this is in the depths of the coronavirus isolation. This episode today is sponsored by Yardi. We thank them for the support on the podcast. We are welcoming back a returning guest to the podcast. It is Michael Betzalel, who's Executive VP of JLL. He was on here with us last to review the, the 2018 numbers in terms of Ontario brokerage. And it, that episode was really well received. We thought we'd have him back on to talk about the 2019 numbers. And then, of course, given the very recent changes in our entire lives, what the apartment market looks like in the middle of coronavirus and going forward. Just for reference sake, we are here on April 2nd and things are moving quickly. So it's always worth mentioning the date. Michael, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Aaron. Great to be back. Well, let's start looking backwards. You want to kind of talk about the year of 2019 and you know, we'll talk about COVID clearly because that's you know, a pertinent topic, but let's talk about how, how good the year of 2019 was. Maybe make some people feel better that things can be positive. Sure. So just generally speaking, we had a very big year in 2018, and I think that's what we were discussing on our last call just over a year ago. And, you know, we hit close to $2 billion or just over $2 billion of transaction volume. And this is, I'm talking GTA. And last year, we actually exceeded that substantially, where overall transaction volume in 2019 was $3.3 billion. What's that growth? Wait, do the math. Sorry. That's $1.3 billion above $2 billion. So that's like a 70% growth? Yeah. Now, I think it's important to frame that because there was a massive deal that everyone, most people are aware of, the Continuum REIT deal, where Conundrum you know, sold one of their first, I think it was their first and their second fund to Starlight. And that deal in total was $1.7 billion of which 1.4 billion was in the GTA. So the GTA volume year over year from 2018 to 2019 actually was down about $100 million, but still exceptionally high. And, and when you consider that deal, of course, you know, much, much higher. But Michael, didn't 2018 have uh, a very large wind deal as well that would kind of inflate 2018 as well? Good point. The wind deal was about, you know, $800 million of multifamily. You know, there was some other commercial real estate assets in there as well. But yeah, and so that was a big deal. But it's hard to compare because that was more of a a straight real estate deal. And this was a, you know, like, I guess both of them were off market deals in reality, and both did go to Starlight, although Timber Creek participated on the wind deal. So that is a fair point, Adam. Yes. Do you any sense? Go ahead, Adam. I was going to say, if we take, uh, take the outliers at you know, face value in these, in these large transactions, or sorry, if we take out the large outliers, from the perspective you had in the marketplace, do you feel like it was slightly less velocity in 2019? Or what was your perspective in terms of just the interest and the number of buyers that would show up at the tables for transactions, you know, the kind of intangibles that we can't really measure through pure dollars? Yeah, I mean, it was still, I think we talked about Starlight Investments before and how quickly they were to the table and and how much they acquired it in 2018. And that continued into 2019. They actually accounted for, actually give you the numbers, like over 7,200 apartments in the GTA. Now, the next most active investor in 2019 was Q Residential with over almost 1,100. 
So it wasn't qual- even qual- close. qualify that that's the same as the continuum deal, right? The continuum deal, and I don't have a number exactly, but it was like of that was about 4,000 apartments or 4,500 apartments. So they're a massive percentage of the value. Now, when you actually take out the continuum deal, Starlight's about 27% of all other transactions. With the continuum deal, when you uh, consider it by the number of suites, it's an overwhelming majority. It's like 60%. And that doesn't include the Northview deal. That hasn't, that, that hasn't happened yet. I yeah, mean, that's yeah, yeah. scheduled to close this year. And, and that, yeah, we'll see what happens with that. Did you get a sense, I mean, piggybacking on Adam's question, just about sort of the, you know, I know it's tough to look backwards on the good times, but, you know, there was a lot of momentum, certainly sitting in First National, you know, the major apartment lender, we felt like there was just lots of momentum and there was a ton of activity, a ton of interest and, and new participants coming to the marketplace. Like, who were the main people? I mean, obviously, Starlight, you, you mentioned Q. Were there new entrants? Was there European money? Like, kind of who were the players and, and how was that interaction? How were those, um, how, were, how were you managing making sure you had the most amount of people at the table, I guess, is maybe the better way to put it. Yeah, no, I, th- I think that goes back to Adam's question as well. And I think that's fair. I feel like it was the usual suspects. You know, we did a deal with within Turrent REIT that just closed and they're now very active in Quebec and trying to become, you know, far more active in Toronto as well. Minto has, you know, obviously they sold some properties recently, but they stepped up their game in terms of their acquisitions across the country. Timber Creek has become more competitive on marketed deals. Starlight obviously remains. Real Star acquired a very glossy new purpose-built rental in the west end of Toronto, which seems to be where they're focusing and where they're able to compete aggressively. Homestead stays the course. I mean, Homestead will win on deals that they like. They're very choosy about the types of assets they want to own, and, and then they're aggressive when they want to own them. Are they more... Sorry, but just on Homestead, they're more, they're not a big value add player, right? Are they looking more for stable assets that are kind of just cookie cutter? Not necessarily. I mean, it's more they want quality to begin with. So it's not that they won't add value, they do. My opinion, it's more that there's certain scale and features of assets. They don't want walk ups, they like infrastructure, they like amenities, they like being able to offer their tenants a higher quality of living. They want a quality assets. I mean, what I understand is like even things like they prefer sliding doors than walkout doors to patios, balconies. They really, you know, they're private capital and and they don't have to buy for anybody. So they want to own assets that they're proud of. And that's, you know, generally how I have, you know, my experience with them over the years. From a private capital standpoint, it has become more difficult, obviously, for them to buy. And and I may, might have given this example last year, but just the run-up in value makes the required amount of capital, you know, required to get into a deal that much more. And, you know, you need to have, be, have a long-term focus and very patient capital to acquire in today's market. When you're looking at, you know, a 30-unit building going for 10 million bucks, of which you can only get maybe 5 million in debt, it becomes very challenging for private capital. So, there are private capital acquiring on the small side, and I think that's going to change. I think this coronavirus could be a, a benefit to some groups with a lot of capital sitting on the sidelines with cash. But you know, it was a very difficult year for private capital to buy. So if Dreamer, if Dreamer's obviously winning big and private capital is not picking up too many suites, who's the in-between? Who is still managing to buy stuff that Dreamer doesn't jump on first? 
Again, I mean, I think I said some of the names, but, you know, Minto and, and Realstar and Timber Creek. There was a company that acquired about 300 units this year called Equiton, Equiton REIT, small private REIT, Centurion REIT. They've become aggressive. And, you know, I'm probably forgetting some, but those are the main ones. How are they? I mean, I want to ask a question about cap rates in 2019. Although I know, I mean, Michael, we've talked about this before. I mean, you, I think you, you sometimes kind of roll your eyes and go like, what is a cap rate, right? And maybe that's a worthwhile conversation anyway. How did cap rates transition throughout 2019? And I appreciate in today's current environment, it's kind of irrelevant, but I still think it's a worthwhile discussion. And so how were guys wrapping their heads around that two and a half, three cap rate? Was it totally about just rent appreciation or, you know, they're just amortizing their investment over 30 years? Like what was the approach? Yeah. I mean, cap rates have certainly, you know, hit as, you know, pretty low point in our existence. I mean, they just seem to go down year over year over year. Last year's cap rates were, hold on, I'm just looking here. I think we had it at 3.67% 3.67% average cap rate. And to be honest with you, to me, it's kind of not a real number. Yeah. Average price per suite went up to 288000 to $288,000 $288, a suite. Again, like it's all relative based on what you're selling. And particularly when you have a huge portfolio that trades that could throw it off. Cap rates aren't reported on every deal. You know, there is, I always say the lower the cap rate, the longer the story. There is a tremendous amount of upside built into every acquisition. And the lower the cap rate, typically the more upside there is. You know, and usually there's a relationship between a low cap rate and a low price per suite relative to market. It's unusual that you're going to find a good cap rate and a low price per suite. So, you know, again, we're talking, you know, if we want to get into the next question, you're probably going to ask me about upside and rental upside. And, you know, the market, it's actually pretty interesting. We saw a 6.8% increase from 2018 to 2019 in average rents. Okay. Now that's very high historically. Okay. Now the average, the guideline increase was about 2%. And there's a 6.8% increase in average rents. Now that means that on turnover, rents are increasing tremendously. But there is no turnover. Turnover has now gone down as of 2019 to 9.5%. Previously to that, it was about 11.5%, 13, 4, 15. And if you go back, you know, 10, 15 years, we were sitting in an environment where there was 20 to 25% turnover historically and consistently. And now we're sitting at under 10%. So that just shows you how much upside there really is on turnover. In some cases, rents are doubling. You know, you're seeing rents go from 1,000 to 2,000. The challenge is, is as rents get higher, turnover goes down. We've been hearing anecdotally, or not anecdotally, we speak to our clients, about paying tenants to leave. The math of that really makes sense. Are you seeing that in the larger marketplace? Yeah. You know, it's not something that anybody will really admit to. I don't know how legal it is, but for sure in the private capital marketplace, you know, it's something that we're seeing more and more where it's a little more easier for them to you know, operate on their own and make things happen. It's difficult for large institutions and pension funds to kind of to do those kind of things. But yes, ideally, you know, vacancy, you know, it's actually interesting. I remember we sold a building, sold a few buildings, you know, a number of years ago where they were vacant and we sold them major discounts and the market was like 85 or 100,000 a suite. We're selling them for 65,000 a suite. 
because of massive vacancy. And we were begging people to take them off our hands. And nowadays, people will pay more for vacancy. You'd rather have nobody there so you can turn it around and you know put in a tenant at market rent. So the opportunity to create vacancy is what everybody's looking for. And in fact, one of the things that we've also noticed that changes that on almost every deal in between the building, the transaction going firm and closing, buyers are requesting that leases are not signed, units are left vacant. And similarly, we're actually recommending to our clients when we're marketing assets to leave units in, right? From the get-go. And even though they might lose four or five, six months of rent, we can pro forma that at a higher rent in our pro forma. And generally, the most aggressive buyers in the marketplace want to have that unit empty so they can do what they want to do to it to achieve that high rent. Hmm. And then I think I saw your end of year summary, you know, for you personally, you know, what transaction were you most proud of from, or one of them from uh, 2019? There's a couple of great ones we did. Um, I'd say the most unique was the Achilles portfolio. This was a 13 building portfolio, about 548 units and 46 units. I get it. But all different kinds of assets, you know, as small as uh, 20 suites up to uh, 120 suites and scattered from you know, the beaches up to like the East York, a whole bunch of buildings in that East York area. We even had some townhomes at, at Victoria Park and York Mills. All the way across the city, we had uh, some walk-ups, a couple small walk-ups in Spadina Village, Forest Hill Village, as well as some buildings along Eglinton West, where the subway will be ending before it hits LRT. And then even some buildings, a large building in Etobicoke. You know, it was a complicated portfolio and very, very unique because about just under half the units were renovated, but to a standard that nobody's renovating to. So we always talk about renovating units and achieving upside. While Achilles was not just renovating them and getting upside, they were ripping them right back to the studs, putting new walls up, brand new kitchens and bathrooms, pot lights, in-suite laundry, you know, knew everything, dishwashers and, and heated floors in the bathrooms and, you know, soft closed cabinetry and all sorts of, you know, closet organizers and, and really doing an over the top job of renovating. these. And then the other half were the old units with that same sort of upside. So they were achieving benchmark type rents across the board and, you know, in some of those renovated units. And that's so we were comparing them internally just to themselves. So that was a really cool transaction. I think we did like 150 property tours or more for that. Who bought it? So that was Starlight that bought the whole portfolio. We actually received a lot of- That's surprising. Surprising. And, and, you know, they were one of the very few groups that we actually expected would make a portfolio bid. We did have a couple portfolio bids. They were one of the few groups that we expected, just given the type of assets and the scale of the assets and the location of the assets, they, it wasn't a typical portfolio that would attract a lot of the big buyers that could afford something, you know, in the high, you know, close to $200 million range. So Starlight did buy it. We did get a lot of bids. In fact, we actually could have assembled the bids for a higher price. We could have assembled the bids for a higher price. And, but, you know, the transaction risk associated with that high price was something that Achilles, you know, wanted to remove. And, you know, I think the bird in the hand with you know, the most motivated and capable buyer right now appealed to them versus a few more dollars. 
So, I mean, transitioning to kind of current state, April 2nd, 2020, we're all sitting in our own isolation. What does the world look like now? I mean, I guess we've covered a whole bunch of sort of positive stories with the 2019 and the activity. What are you seeing today? Like, what does the marketplace look like? Well, I haven't left my house in three weeks. So the only thing I'm seeing is the inside of my house and my backyard. But I have been spending a lot of time, pretty much all my time on the phone. I've been trying to stay connected to the major stakeholders in our industry, partly to keep abreast of what's happening, but also to keep my own sanity. And I, you know, it's a difficult time to really predict everything. There are definitely conflicting opinions among major leaders in our industry. Overall, right now, um, pens are down. So with respect to REITs, I mean, they're just being devastated in their values. You know, liquidity is key. Collecting rent is a big concern to be able to pay distributions and acquiring real estate is certainly not on their agenda. Pension funds are um, very well set up for this, but the challenge may be their allocations. In fact, I think you know pension funds are not as highly levered, so they're not as, as much risk, but they do have allocation issues. So you know, I think this will be a time for them to kind of count their beans and look at their portfolios and they potentially could be sellers or, you know, possibly wait and buy. Asset managers are and fund managers, you know, we've heard of one of them that has seized, suspended at least redemptions, which is concerning. Again, this is a, a liquidity issue. So I think most of those groups are going to be not be buying. I have spoken to some players, both asset managers and private REITs that are still buying but they are, they need a lot more time. They want, you know, 90 days and a COVID clause. What does that look like? Basically like a a clause in in the agreement that says we get as much time as we need given the circumstances. It's very difficult to do a deal in, in 30 days, you know, when you can't get through the building and see people's apartments and it's difficult to get appraisals done and it's difficult to collect deliverables and it's, environmental. I mean, and I mean, how would you even wrap your head around what rents look like? I mean, if you give yourself 60 days or 90 days, I mean, April 1st is one thing, May 1st, June 1st, July 1st, if this thing goes on, I mean, we may be talking about 80% rent deferrals and things like that, right? So, I mean, and I think that's where most, you know, property owners, where their concern lies right now. It's not on the acquisitions front, it's on the collecting rent and on the liquidity side and, and managing their cash flow. So, that's, in my opinion, where things are. There is a lot of private capital that wants to pounce on opportunities, and I don't think those opportunities are going to happen yet. And then one thing to keep in mind is that there are a lot of, and this is not just my opinion, this is you know, through my discussions with a lot of different you know, people in the industry, is that there's a lot of reason to believe that multifamily will come out of this as strong, if not stronger. Interest rates are very low and likely to stay that way for a long time. They were low going into this, but they've gotten even lower. So that just helps push the cap rate down. Number two, oil is down like tremendously, which kills the Canadian dollar, which makes foreign investment that much more attractive. And I think the most important thing is that the in times of instability, it seems that Canada is a good place to put your money. Real estate is a good place to put your money commercial real estate, and particularly multifamily. Multifamily stands the test of time. It is the most stable and predictable. 
It's the only asset class that can be insured with CMHC debt. And, you know, at the end of the day, people need a place to live. We're also going to see a slowdown in construction, which will put more stress on the supply pool, which it already exists. So I actually personally feel that, you know, when things come back to normal, and I don't know what normal means, but when coronavirus hopefully ends soon, there will be a flight to quality and a flight to multifamily, Canadian multifamily. And it's possible that we won't see that much expansion of the cap rates. Now, not everyone will agree with that. I feel like underwriting might change. So there may not be as much of a bullish approach to bad debt, vacancy at these 1% rates, as well as, you know, rolling rents to, you know, new market norms. I don't know if that's going to be the case or might be the case, but I don't know if anyone will underwrite to that. So you'd be surprised if, you know, if I gave you the names of who I was talking to who had differing opinions, some groups are very, very bullish on multifamily, despite everything that's happening in the world. And others are totally the opposite. Do you think, in terms of seeing that play out, have you personally had any deals that fell apart because of coronavirus concerns? So somebody just um, stepped back from a conditional deal? So we actually didn't have any conditional deals. We have one conditional deal that I'm working on as a part of my national multifamily team in another marketplace, and it's staying the course and a little more time might be required. This is an institutional caliber deal, and things still look good. Uh, It's too early for me to say that it will fall apart. I can tell you that a lot of conditional deals in the market are falling apart. I did have, I do have another small conditional deal that looks like it's moving forward. There may or may not be a minor adjustment. I actually had a firm deal that closed yesterday for 60, a fixed for 60 suites and it closed. But we did, you know, the vendor did make some concession even after it being firm to provide the buyer with a VTB to help bridge this period of uncertainty in terms of, you know, their strategy and this building was bought at about a 285 cap, substantial value add play. And the buyer already was planning to go in there immediately day one, start renovating units, start increasing rent, start adding value. And then, you know, within four to six months, apply for CMHC financing. And that strategy has been delayed. So the vendor actually cooperated and made a concession. And I'd say rightfully so, given that even though it was a firm transaction, you know, they didn't want any risk of the deal not closing and having to fight for the deposit back in court. We do have about three or four listings that we're getting ready to go to market, which we still have ready to go to market. And we're just shelving them for the time being. And we will see what happens week by week and make a decision on, you know, when and if it's the right time to bring those out. I think a lot of people are in a wait and see position right now. I was about to ask you the question, how long are you going to shelve them for? But of course, as you just said, week to week is really tough to say the reality of the marketplace right now. So overall, I mean, this is early days, as we said, it's April 2nd. The general feeling is that it's on pause. There's not been no signs of a real, real disaster brewing. But if we were to have this conversation a month from now, it might be completely different. Yeah, I mean, I hope not. I'm... um... (laughs) It's looking quite grim. You know, if this is a month or two, fine. If, you know, again, like from a personal standpoint, I can't even think of that way. I'm just trying to go day by day. You know, I think there's other asset classes that are going to really feel the pain. You know, obviously hotel, 
is it will come back. But the dynamics of retail, you know, particularly small business renting retail space, they'll be out of business. It's going to be very difficult for landlords with retailers to to come back from this. And similarly, even office buildings. I mean, I think the dynamics of office are going to change forever. Not everybody will need as much space. They're learning how to work remotely and don't want to expose themselves. So I feel like office might change forever. But multifamily is always going to be a need. Yeah, the one thing, the one thing, Michael, sorry to cut you off, but we haven't really seen the effects of, I mean, I, sh- I know all of your clients and there are clients also have been receiving requests for rent deferral or rent abatement, but all governments and all levels are offering support for making their rents and putting food on the table. So I really, it's be really interesting. It is early to tell, you know, again, it's just April 2nd, so we don't even know what the April 1st payment collection looked like or rent collection looked like. What does May look like? What does June look like? And if everybody that are, you know, struggling because of result of COVID are applying for sort of, sort of government assistance, the purpose of that assistance is to continue to pay their rent, which, which may prop up apartments as an asset class beyond sort of any of the others that you've mentioned, because there's, there's no such relief for retail tenants or, you know, hotels that are sitting at 10% occupancy or whatever it may be. Yeah. And another thing to keep in mind is that bad debt, as difficult as it is to swallow, it's not something that you can capitalize. So, you know, if the rent is not collected or a portion of the rent is not collected for April and May and June, you know, when things get back to normal, particularly as time goes on, that bad debt is not to be capitalized. People will start paying their rent again. It will get back to normal. The difference in that rent is not, in terms of you know, trying to determine value, I don't think that that gets capitalized. We spoke about cap rates earlier, about where you were for, for 2019. And uh, you know, I'll admit that that question has been asked of me numerous times in the last couple of days. If you were to, you know, Throw a dart at a dartboard, you know, that might be one way of guessing. You might have a better way than I do right now. What do you think cap rates are? What sort of movement do you think we would have seen in cap rates again in these early days? Oh, I wish I uh, I knew. It's a tough question. I know that. And you know, I've been asked over and over. Well, hold on, hold on. Before you answer, Michael, let me do the let me do the interest rate. You know, because we we talk about interest rates, and I can tell you again, April second, twenty twenty, on the CMC insured side, you know, the bonds are down. They're down forty, fifty basis points. Let's say over kind of pre-COVID, but spreads are up sort of 40, 50 basis points. So if you'd like to use interest rates and a delta from interest rates to cap rates as sort of the way the, as a barometer, it would appear to me then that interest rates are flat, so therefore cap rates should be flat. Well, I think that, you know, there's a little bit more risk being factored in now with this coronavirus. It's hard for me to sit here right now and tell you that cap rates will be lower or that cap rates will be flat. I mean, I feel that deals will get done, maybe on some secondary markets, maybe on some premium assets, but like general average deals, it's going to be hard to swallow those low caps at least for their balance of this year. And now again, every deal is different and there's certain attributes of different assets that will play better, you know, to this environment where a more stable performing asset with seniors in a growth oriented market might actually be more attractive than it was before, where previously it was all about value add might now be more about stability. So again, I I don't know. I I don't want to I have a lot of ideas. And I, on one hand, I think that there's a great story for cap rates to remain very low, to go even lower. As I said earlier in the call, you know, between interest rates and the cost of the dollar and flight to quality and predictability. But 
just human nature. And the other thing is the opportunity cost. Like, what are we going to be buying hotels and office buildings and retail for? What are the yields on those assets? Because it all, you know, there is a spread between you know, the various risk profiles of these different asset classes, always with multifamily being at the low end of the cap rate range. But as those assets shift up, technically, so should multifamily. Well, this has been great. This has been great, Michael. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. And it's tough for everybody. We really appreciate you kind of giving your insights and kind of allowing us to kind of see what your world looks like today. I'd like to thank our sponsor, of course, First National for powering the podcast. Don't let me forget anybody. Yardy for sponsoring the podcast, to the Real Estate Forum for supporting us. And of course, to Michael for coming on and my co-host, Adam. Thanks again. I really appreciate it. Thanks, guys, for having me. We'll do this again next year. Yeah, absolutely. Or in a month, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Take care, guys. Thanks, Michael. Cheers. See ya. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.